for tuning in. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Bedick. Our musical inspiration, Carly Simon, is one of the most prominent singer-songwriters from the 1970s who has recorded over 30 albums and won two Grammys and an Academy Award. The song you just heard is a title song from the movie Heartburn, starring Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson, from Carly's 13th studio album entitled Coming Around Again, released back in 1987. Tonight, Carly Simon is inspiring us to talk more openly about various health issues and conditions we're dealing with, including type 2 diabetes, depression, sleep apnea, and binge eating disorder. For Carly, it proved the right thing to do. She suffered from severe stuttering as a child and had a stammer. The only time it went away is when she sang, so one day her mother said to her, don't sing, don't speak it, sing it, and that's what she did. Since that time... She has spoken openly about suffering from stage fright. It's so severe that she once fainted dead away on stage. Her fear kept her off stage for 14 years until this a uh, few years ago when she finally decided to confront it. She said she had to prove to herself that she could do it. The longer you wait, the harder it is to get back on the horse. So how about you? Are you willing to confront your fears and speak openly about some of the incredible uh, something incredibly personal like your diabetes to your friends, family, or even announce it on social media? Well, maybe tonight's guests, Martin Carlson and Elise Delessandro Santiago, and their health journeys can inspire you to become more vocal about yourself and your health. Throughout this podcast, we'll be featuring more music from Carlos Simons coming around again, courtesy of Sony Music. But before we play our next song, I want to encourage you to check out Diva Bedick's annual mystery podcast. It's called... Ooh la la. That's not called Ooh la la. It's called A Christmas Peril. We recorded it last month, and it's now available on demand on iTunes and Blog Talk Radio. Plus, you can sign up right now for two upcoming Zoom programs. We've got the holiday baking party with Stacey Harris, known as the Diabetic Pastry Chef, in December, and our Once in a Blue Moon program for National Diabetes Awareness Month in November uh, coming up shortly. So visit Eventbrite for more details. Straight ahead, we're talking about sleep apnea, a condition that makes managing your your diabetes much more difficult. This is because when your breathing pauses while you sleep, there's an increase in carbon dioxide in your blood. This could lead to insulin resistance, which is when your body doesn't use insulin effectively. 
let's ponder that thought while we get in the mood and listen to Stuff That Dreams Are Made Of by Carly Simon, courtesy of Sony Music. Hey, she was inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame back in 1994. Here's the Stuff That Dreams Are Made Of, courtesy of Sony Music. Take a look around now Change the direction Adjust the tuning Try a new translation have sleep problems. Do you snore? Do you feel fatigued every day? Do you wake up frequently throughout the night? Well, maybe you're like my first guest, who's like eight, who's like one of 18 million other Americans who struggles with a health condition called sleep apnea. It took him years before he took action. He's the director of content for the Sleep Pillar 4 Media. There are four sites, including Mattress Clarity, Mattress Nerd, Sleepopolis, and Mattress O, um, which offer engaging mattress reviews and helpful sleep health information. Please welcome to the show, Martin Carlson. Hi, Martin. So nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for joining us and helping us get a better understanding of this topic. You know, um, sleep apnea can prevent a person from getting a good night's sleep, which could worsen their diabetes. I know you don't have diabetes and you're not a doctor, but you are very passionate about sleep. And I'm just wondering, what inspired you to even want and get involved in the sleep uh, industry, and why do you think it's so important that people get a good night's rest? Yeah, it's uh, I'm very passionate about it because I do believe and I'm excited about um, whole body health, um, from mental health to nutrition um, to exercise to, to sleep as well. And the more, even before I started writing about sleep and researching it myself, I just was reading more and more about how sleep is related to every other part of our health. And um, I also struggle with anxiety personally and poor sleep and poor sleep health can exacerbate anxiety issues and depression issues. And, and also I just feel like sleep is again, linked to all parts of our life and you can't start off on the right foot for your day if you don't get a good night of sleep. And did you find by, you know, cause you have those four websites, how people, how is, how has the pandemic affected people's sleep in general? Have you seen any trends? Are there more problems coming up? Do you feel people are getting better sleep? I'm just curious about your thoughts on that. Um, I actually was just speaking to one of uh, my associates today, and he brought up that very issue. And pretty much across the board, sleep is worse um, during the pandemic. And uh, 
a lot of studies looking at that. And again, it's not, you know, 100% across the board. Um, but one thing that really affects sleep uh, negatively is stress and um, stressful thoughts. And um, as we all know, living through this really uh, unique and, and terrible time in a lot of ways, um, that stress is just pervasive throughout our entire day. Hard to shut off those thoughts before going to bed. So I would say in general, it's definitely negatively affects sleep, uh, especially around the world. All right. Now, you actually thought you were getting a good night's sleep, but it was a camping trip that kind of triggered this idea that maybe it wasn't such a good night's sleep after all. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, and and we're, we're talking about sleep apnea here, and, and I'd heard from people that um, I, I snore. Um, but I was on a camping trip with my brother, and it was a uh, – it's actually the – the baby bachelor party before my nephew was born and we were going camping and we hadn't gone camping in years and we were in the tent and he kind of, he nudged me. He's like, you are choking in your sleep. Like you are not breathing. Um, and then a few months later, another a friend I was traveling with, we were in a hotel room, sharing a room said the same thing as like, you sound like you're stopping breathing during the night. Um, and those were the first signs of, I really didn't even know what sleep apnea was at that point, but I knew something was definitely wrong. And what were your sleep habits like at that point? I mean, did you, so you, were you tired? I mean, did you, looking back on it, when you look at that time period before you actually got the diagnosis, did you ever struggle with insomnia or anything like that? that I mean, anything else that would have been, you know, would have piqued your interest or looking back, go, oh, there was an aha moment that I didn't think about or I missed. It's really interesting when one of the signs of sleep apnea, again, is, is really extreme snoring where you're choking when you're sleeping. But if you don't sleep with a partner a lot of the time, you might have no idea you have sleep apnea. So I did not know for uh, many of those years. But I, like you mentioned, fatigue, um, I was tired all the time and it's insomnia was actually the opposite of the issue it wasn't quite to the level of narcolepsy but if i for instance just sat down on the couch for three minutes i could fall asleep i was always at a point of exhaustion of i could fall asleep right now because with sleep apnea you're not getting full restful sleep during the night so while you are you know in bed and you are not conscious um you're not getting that, that true restful REM sleep. And so now take us forward. So here you are working for Mattress Clarity. Uh, your brother has mentioned this. Someone else, like you said, mentioned it when you shared another hotel room. And uh, you're, you start reading about sleep apnea, which kind of piques your interest and you start putting two and two together. I'd like to just tell our listeners a little bit about that. Yeah, um, definitely. So I, you know, find myself writing about sleep. Um, and when I was first writing for Mattress Clarity, I was mostly focused on, on sleep health and, and new sleep studies that were coming out. And I wrote four or five pieces just about sleep apnea, the signs, but also like the comorbidities and, and the other health outcomes they were affecting. So again, anxiety, high cholesterol, um, uh, heart disease in general. And I said, okay, this is more than snoring if this is what it is. And so that's what led me to finally go get tested for sleep apnea. 
But that's what I think is interesting, Martin, is like you just admitted, you know, you're dealing with anxiety. So when you found out that, oh, my gosh, this potential condition, I'm using air quotes, could cause diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, stroke, um, were you freaked out? I mean, did it did it actually stop you from immediately taking action, or did it, or did that fear somehow make you want to take more immediate action? Because I think a lot of our listeners sometimes are very hesitant about following up with um, a screening or something like that, just based on the anxiety and the fear related to what the worst possible outcome could be. That's a really good question, and I I think. Initially, I was hesitant um, because it's one of those things that I was scared, as you said, of what what could it mean. Um, but once I kind of got past that idea, my I said, "Oh, if this is connected to a lot of other things I'm feeling, like if I'm exhausted and my anxiety is high, and this could be one of the reasons for it, I was actually ready to find out what that was and and seek treatment. And and part of the thing that stopped me as well is before I had started working for Mattress Clarity, I didn't have the best insurance. And I, I was fearful of just going and getting tested and realizing that I was going to spend, you know, thousands of dollars possibly on treatment, which is also something that can stop you. No, absolutely. And a lot, you know, we've, we've spent a whole episode on insurance and diabetes, and I hope people check out mm. that podcast. It's available on demand. So, okay, so then you go to your general practitioner, you would tell them, about what your brother said about the snoring, some of the fears you had. They lead, he, lead, he or she leads you to a sleep doctor, and that con- consultation takes you to something else. So tell us a little bit about now how you were actually diagnosed with sleep apnea. Yeah. Um, so after speaking with my general practitioner, uh, Dr. Balderas, who's amazing, I thought I'd give him a little shout out there. He's been <laughs> great for me. Um, led me to uh, a uh, sleep doctor in Austin, Texas. And the first thing they did was say, okay, first thing we do is we get you set up for a um, overnight uh, sleep test. And uh, polysomnography, I believe, is the, the whole name, and I always mess that up when I try to pronounce it. But um, basically, you go in overnight. It looks like this very um, normal, almost hotel room, um, but with a lot of wires. And so at first, I was a little intimidated by it all, but uh, the sleep tech was super helpful. Um, I lay down, and they hooked up nodes to um, my forehead, into my hair as well, across my skull, um, across my chest, some of my legs as well. Um, and then I lay down and I slept for the entire night. And actually during, or I tried to sleep. It is, again, awkward at first. Um, but as the night went on, I finally fell asleep. And the sleep tech actually came in during the night, and I was kind of half asleep and said, hey, try this. And they gave me a CPAP. And they put that on. That was also a little strange at first. It's this, this um, continuous pressure that is kind of being blown up your nose or your mouth. Uh, most of your nose, and I fell back asleep, wake up in the morning, I go home, and uh, a few days later, they call me in for my uh, kind of second consultation, and they showed me the data, and this was where things got pretty shocking for me. So um, I believe, as they explained it to me, um, anything over three wake-ups an hour is um, extreme sleep apnea, obstructive sleep apnea. I was waking up 45 times an hour. 
So that means when my throat would close during the night, I would stop breathing, and you wake up slightly. And, of course, they could measure that um, with all of their technology they had me hooked up to. I was waking up 45 times an hour, and the doctor even said to me, I don't know how you're standing up right now from the exhaustion. And we should tell everyone, but at that mo- prior to that moment, you didn't even know if you really had sleep apnea. So this was something that, like you said, uh, you walked around for years before you were diagnosed with it. So, and then you find out uh, this extreme thing. So that's why it's so important, like you said, for people who are listening, who are living alone, that uh, they potentially should have this checked out. So just tell us quickly before we take a break, what are some of the common causes or the things that could increase your chances of developing sleep apnea before we bring you back to talk about some of the treatments that you mentioned? Yeah, for sure. Um, So there are uh, some uh, clear reasons, as they say, behind uh, developing sleep apnea. One is genetic, and some people actually are born with narrower airways. Um, And so having a more narrow airway can make it easier for your throat to close at the back and cause that choking sensation um, during the night. Um, Another one can be uh, being overweight or obese. Uh, As you're putting more weight, it makes it uh, easier for that throat uh, to close down as well. Um, And then allergies. So you can actually have it at certain times of the year. And then people who smoke, uh, smoking is, is bad for all kinds of respiration, uh, but can also exacerbate and cause sleep apnea. Wow. And so I, I know when we, you're going to tell us more about the treatment option, which you mentioned earlier when we come back, but um, it, it's just so fascinating. Again, I want to tell people, I read this great quote from the clinical director of the Institute of Sleep and Wake Disorders in Hackensack University Medical Center in New Jersey. She said, uh, if you have diabetes, are overweight, and snore, please tell your doctor because you may need to get a sleep study like you were just describing, Martin. All right, we're going to take a quick break, uh, musical break, that is. But when we come back, Martin's going to share some of the various treatment options available for sleep uh, sleep apnea. One of those options in particular is frequently used on the ranch at The Biggest Loser by contestants. So... But first, let's hear some more music from Carly Simon. Here's Give Me the Night, courtesy of Sony Music. October podcast. We're continuing our discussion, talking to the director of content for the Sleep Sites Pillar Four Media, Martin Carlson. And if you want to watch him on some of these videos, you go check him out on YouTube. Uh, so much great information about different sleep products and reviews you could use about all those products in your bedroom. But we're going to jump in and talk more about sleep apnea and get back to this thing you mentioned called the CPAP, Martin. Now, a million years ago when I used to uh, headline the main stage at the American Diabetes Expo in Pittsburgh, I worked with one of the biggest loser contestants, Sherry Johnson, who told me that everyone on the ranch at the Biggest Loser uses a CPAP machine. (laughs) So you mentioned CPAP. What does it stand for, and what is that machine? 
Yeah, um, it stands for continuous positive airway pressure. Um, kind of a mouthful for sure. Um, but basically what it does is it's, it's an air pump that continuously supplies pressure to your airway. So you wear a mask over, like mine, for instance, um, is fit over my nose with some headgear. A tube goes from that down to the pump. And depending on what your doctor suggests, um, for instance, I am at, I believe, 5 PSI, um, pounds per square inch. And so that is what's continuously being pumped into my nose. And what that does, again, from, from my knowledge and having used it now for over three years, um, when that, with the air kind of going up down your nose and down your, air, your airway, it's keeping your throat from collapsing, again, stopping your breathing. So you're waking up much more rested. Um, it is a, uh, a really, no pun intended, night and day <laughs> compared to what uh, things were like before for me. Um, but basically, again, it's just continuous air pressure um, through your airway. Well, and I think that Sherry Johnson gave it the best um, recommendation because when you think about it, on The Biggest Loser, they're being, you know, forced into exhaustion with all the workouts to lose the weight. They can't have those contestants be tired. They really have to sleep well in order to perform on camera. So it seems to me like if they're using it, it must be, you know, very uh, – it just has to be really helpful on so many levels with the energy level at the very least, along with everything else you're talking. You know, Carly Simon, though, has a song called You're So Vain. So I'm just wondering, like, it looks a little bit like Hannibal uh, Lecter to me, the mask. (laughs) What's it it like to wear it? And, you know, I don't know if you have a – if you have partners in the bedroom, like, is it embarrassing to show them your machine? I'm just curious, like – how how willing you were to actually wear that device? You, it's it's a good question. I when I first was diagnosed, when they first um, found the CPAP machine for me, and I was getting all fed up with it. The, I think there are some patients who are hesitant to use it. It's 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 awkward at first. It feels a little bit strange because you're having you know air pumping into your nose. Like you said, it looks like something the Hannibal Lecter would wear um, or like the space jockey from Alien, if you will. And I remember at first I felt it was a little bit strange. Um, and I believe when I first got on CPAP, I was single, so I really didn't have to show it to anybody in my bedroom. But I remember my first girlfriend after um, wearing it, I had had it for so long at that point. It, I kind of just made a joke of it. I said, well, here's this weird thing. But also, like, you don't have to hear me snore all night. And that actually, I, was, I, was, I think that's just better than having the, the embarrassment of having someone over and then basically keeping them up with, like, that sawing logs sound. Is it, is it loud or uncomfortable? Do you ever knock it off in your sleep? I mean, I know those are questions that our listeners would want to know. Yeah, for sure. Um, at first, I did take it off in my sleep. Um, I was like, I think subconsciously, this was this alien thing on, on my head. And so I was taking it off. Honestly, after five or six nights, that was never an issue anymore. It is also um, whisper quiet. Uh, you can barely ever hear it. You might hear a little bit of a breathing sound, but I've had partners, sleeping partners, tell me it's actually kind of soothing. If there's any sound, it has kind of the sound of a white noise machine. 
All right, and you brought up the insurance issue before, so the next question would be, is a CPAP machine generally covered by most insurance? Um, in my experience, yes, um, because it, um, it is generally covered. I had no issues. Um, and I believe I, my insurance when I started was not, I mean, as good as it is now, um, but I had no issues getting it, it paid for. I think it was, I think mine was $27 a month for like a year to pay off a machine, um, but everything else was covered. And that is, we should tell everyone, that's not the only option out there for people with sleep apnea. You mentioned in your video on YouTube, there's a few more options available. Can you just walk us through those two other options I think I heard you mention in YouTube? Yeah, yeah, there, there, there are two or three I can mention. Um, it's interesting because uh, there are dentists who are licensed to um, help with sleep apnea, and that's because there are um, oral appliances that you can put in your mouth, almost like a mouth guard. Um, and again, my understanding, I have not used this myself, my understanding of how these work is it keeps the lower jaw um, protruded a little bit that keeps your um, airway open. So for some people, that actually works. And it's, you know, much less intrusive than a, a machine that you're strapping to your face. Um, there's also one I've been reading about actually just to, before we were talking, I was just kind of looking at other, anything new that had popped up since I was diagnosed. And there's something I've heard, heard of called um, Inspire. It's a sleep apnea innovation. It's actually an implant that you control with a remote um, and stimulates, I believe, the back of the throat to, in that similar to CPAP, um, keep that open and keep your airway from closing down. And lastly, um, you can actually have surgery done and that is to uh, trim away some of the uh, tissues found at the back of the throat to widen the airway. Great advice. All right, before we let you go, we're gonna have a little bit of fun. I know you went viral recently with one of your YouTube videos, so it's time for... We're going to give you two options and see which one you want to kick to the curb with your boots like Nancy Sinatra. You went viral with a video on duvets versus comforters. Martin, what's the better one, the duvet or the comforter, and what do, people, what do most people like? I would say right now duvets are more popular, and I am a duvet person. I think having that um, extra layer on the outside. You don't have to use a top sheet if you use a, uh, a duvet. So I think I would kick to the curb the comforter. I, am I, I'm an idiot, but what's the difference between a duvet and a comforter? Um, a comforter, it's, it's one of the questions as old as time. A comforter is uh, one piece, and a duvet is usually two pieces. And you can actually put a duvet cover over a comforter, so that's where things get a little complicated. But usually comforter is going to be one solid piece of bedding with the uh, filling inside. With a duvet, you're going to have a duvet, which is the actual inside, which could look like a comforter with all of the filling, and a duvet cover, almost like a giant pillowcase on the outside. gives much more of a kind of clean look and design to your bedroom. All right, so you're giving thumbs up to duvet, and now we all know that. I love it. All right, before we let you go, I just want to talk a little bit about Mattress Clarity because I know that with the pandemic, so many stores have closed, and most of us are shopping online for mattresses. So if I were to go to – if I was going to buy a new mattress or if I am going to buy a new mattress, why go to Mattress Clarity? What are you guys um, – 
how are you helping me uh, make a smart choice when it comes to shopping for a mattress? Yeah, um, thank you for that. I, the main thing is, as the name suggests, offering clarity. And as you mentioned, um, buying a mattress online is very difficult because the first thing people want to do when they get to a mattress store is get on that mattress and try it out for themselves. But with the pandemic, as you said, with buying a mattress online, you don't get that experience. So what we're offering is we do that for you. Every mattress we review on the site is personally reviewed by our sleep testers, by people like myself who've tried hundreds of mattresses. We spend time with that in terms of firmness and feel. We talk about sleeping positions. So if you're a side sleeper, we have a best of page, best mattress for side sleepers just for you. We have mattresses if you're a hot sleeper, um, for all kinds of pain issues as well. So no matter what your sleeping type, we can help lead you to the right buying decision. All right. Well, Mar Martin Carlson, thank you so much for joining us. And, again, the product that you're loving right now is the CPAP. So uh, CPAP machine, everybody. Check that out. Learn more about uh, sleep apnea. Thanks, Martin, for joining us. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Our diva musical inspiration, Carly Simon, was married to singer James Taylor for 10 years. She also dated Warren Beatty, who she admitted was the inspiration for the song You're So Vain. Ouch. Uh, let's listen to All I Want, courtesy of Sony Music, before we meet our next guest. Coming out day a day later. Um, I, I just you. love your bravery 
I love I love how outspoken you are, and you know I've my listeners know that I've been out for over thirty years, and I always mm-hmm. compare uh, coming out with your sexual identity. I feel just like that act of bravery of overcoming shame and blame is similar to coming out about a health diagnosis like type two diabetes, mm-hmm. depression. And I wanted to ask you specifically: Do you feel there's any kind of comparisons or similarities between the two? And if so, what are your thoughts on that? That's a great question, and I absolutely believe that there's a comparison because embracing who you are and your sexual identity has a lot to making peace with yourself. I always say the most important person I had to come out to was myself, right? And so I knew that I identified as queer from the time I was about 21, and I didn't come out until I was 29. Similarly, I was diagnosed uh, with diabetes, and it took me a full year before I came out with diabetes publicly on my platform because I really believe, especially when you're a public figure, you need to be able to process what you're going through privately because as a public figure, you become a spokesperson for this that thing whether you want to be or not so I knew if I was going to talk about having type 2 diabetes that I needed to make peace and understand my diagnosis first before I could encourage others to do the same and I would think Elise honestly because you're also a plus-size person that type 2 diabetes everyone wants to tell you how to manage it once they find out about that diagnosis I don't I don't even care well, if you're a straight size, <laughs> people mm-hmm. want to point And do, so did you feel any of that when you first started to disclose it? Were people coming out of the woodwork just to tell you what you should do and what you shouldn't do? Yes, I absolutely felt like there was a lot of people that were going to have opinions because when you are a plus-size person, especially when you're a plus-size person on the Internet, there is a lot of shame and blame and a lot of assumptions made. So people, because of my size, already assumed that I had type 2 diabetes. And people on the Internet tell me that that's the worst thing that could happen to me all the time. And so for me, I spent the first few months of my diagnosis really, really understanding diabetes, specifically type 2 diabetes, where it came from, how genetics plays a role, and really read read up on health at every size so I could really be informed that your weight does not cause diabetes. That's not that. That's just not how diabetes works. It's a genetic disease, and someone who's my exact size but has no diabetes in their family is probably not going to get diabetes like I did, and that's really the main factor. So I really armed myself with knowledge so that I could counter well, actually, have you read this article? You know, I think knowledge is always our kind of best defense uh, because we could get hurt feelings or, you know, we could go out there and say, well, actually, you're not maybe in, as informed as you could be, and here's, um, here's some things that I've read about this. So I really made sure that I was armed with knowledge and that I understood my own boundaries. So I made sure that the doctor I went to was weight neutral, and I said, if we're going to do this together, we're going to focus on my A1C. That's how you measure your health as a person living with diabetes. My weight does not matter. And I have been able to see through using my Freestyle Libre 2, which is a continuous glucose monitor, that my weight has maybe shifted a little bit over my diagnosis, but my A1C has changed 
a lot. And that means that weight is not an indicator of your health. Your A1C is what's an indicator. Um, and so by using my freestyle Libre, I was really able to tell how much stress was playing a huge role. And that didn't, my weight wasn't changing. It was just that A1C, which I could tell um, in those daily graphs on my freestyle Libre could tell me, hey, here's how stress is playing such a huge role. My weight w was not an indicator at all. Okay, so I have two questions off of that. One, okay. I love the Freestyle Libre, and I want to talk more about it. But uh, the first question related to that, though, is a lot of people get overwhelmed by just the information, the numbers, numbers, numbers coming at you, especially with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And that number could be your age. That number could be your dress size. That number could be the scale. That number could be your H1C, like uh, A1C, as you mentioned. And it could also be your blood sugars. Did you ever feel overwhelmed by these numbers or you know how you know because you're you're you've mentioned in several videos about knowledge being power but I like to get a little real with people sometimes that just ask like does it ever numb you out too and if it does how have you how what has pushed you over that absolutely that's a great question and I think for me the thing that helps me the most is understanding that diabetes, like any health condition, is an individualized experience. What my body with diabetes looks like is not going to be the same as somebody else. So I could talk to somebody else who's the same age as me, was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes at the same age, and no matter what, we're not going to have the same experience. So what really helped me not get lost in the numbers is to understand that I am only measuring against myself. I cannot look at what somebody else is doing because I don't live their life and I don't have their body. So I think it's really important with anything that you are living with that you focus on yourself and kind of try to just be better than you were the day before, the three months before, the year before. And that's really what I try to do with diabetes because getting diagnosed at such a young age, I knew, I hoped, I would be living with this for a long time, right? So I just kind of got in that mindset that, like, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to live my life to the fullest, and that means that I need to just be better than I was, you know, the day before. So I know entrepreneurship runs in your family because you you mentioned your mom, and I, I, my mom is in several diabetic things. I love my mom. She's amazing. Does mm -hmm. diabetes run in your family too? Absolutely. I Some of my earliest memories, uh, it's sad to say, but I, I was going to the hospital to visit my grandparents, uh, both my maternal and paternal grandfather, grandmother and grandfather. They both, um, they both passed from uh, complications of diabetes in their mid-60s, um, and I lost both of them. I knew what diabetes was as a very, very young kid, and my mom actually, after her parents passed, started working for the American Diabetes Association. So I grew up going to the galas and doing the walks and doing all those events. So I love that, you know, you also work with the American Diabetes Association because that's definitely an organization that is close to my heart. And when I was diagnosed, my doctor said it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. And that really stuck with me because I could sit there all day and blame myself, and I did this and I did that, but here's a doctor telling me it wasn't a matter of if, it was a matter of when. Uh, and I think that is a pretty good indicator that <laughs> diabetes is, is genetic. Uh, and I realized when I got older, oh, not all my friends' grandparents had that, ex you know, they didn't have that experience going to the hospital um, and watching their, parent, their grandparents pass from complications of diabetes. So, yes, it does run in my family, um, and 
in turn, my mom is a, a huge diabetes advocate and has been my whole life. So, Well, and given that, Elise, you did admit in another interview that you didn't want to be a person who takes daily medications or probably even wears a medical device. But now you do. So I know there's a lot of people who are hesitating with that, too. They just don't like to deal with the day-to-day stuff. So uh, what got you over the hurdle, and what triggered you to even want to look at a freestyle Libre? Who who turned you on to that device? I knew that I wanted to wear the freestyle Libre as soon as I knew that it existed. I learned about it from a commercial on TV, and I saw that, and I said, that seems so much easier than what I'm doing because as a person who is living with diabetes and also recovering from an eating disorder, it's very easy to tune out from what's going in your bo- going on in your body, um, disassociate when you're eating, and kind of make choices that aren't aligned with what's going on in your body. And so by taking my blood sugar the traditional way, that gave me a lot of freedom in a way, a freedom to disassociate, to check out, to not think about my diabetes. I knew that the Freestyle Libre would hold me accountable, and that's exactly what it's done. It has truly made me check in, check on myself. The new Freestyle Libre 2 app has alarms that I absolutely love. They come right to your phone, and they tell you when you're high or when you're low, and you can't turn them off. So, as someone who's always on their phone, it's my job as an influencer to be on my phone. Now I'm getting those alerts right to my phone, letting me know, hey, you know, maybe you need to drink some more water or go on a walk or you need to eat something, you know. So it prevents me from being able to check out. And in terms of not wanting to take pills daily or not wanting to wear a medical device, I think as soon as I was diagnosed with diabetes and I was kind of told, hey, like, your A1C is so high, like, it could be life or death for you if you continue to not treat this. And for me, I was like, well, I'm going to choose life. So if the options are pills daily and medical device or or death, then I'm going to choose life for sure. Um, and it wasn't quite so dire, you know, doctors love to fearmonger and frame things that way. But it helped me kind of realize that in order to changes in my life, I had to change things about my comforts. Uh, and so for me now, I don't think twice about wearing a freestyle Libre. I've been wearing it for so long, I don't even think about it. To the point where I was recently in a wedding, and this wedding photographer came up to me and she said, "Hey, do you want me to Photoshop this, you know, your freestyle Libre out in the pictures?" And I said, "No. Why? Why would I want that?" <laughs> and I just totally didn't even think, "Oh, maybe somebody wouldn't want that in the pictures." But to me, it's it's a part of me. It's a part of who I am gives me the opportunity to start a conversation about diabetes and challenging the stigma about type 2 diabetes. So for me, I really learned to embrace it and, and kind of use the fact that, you know, diabetes is an invisible illness for the most part, uh, unless someone's assuming you have it because of your size. People don't know you have it. So for me, the Freestyle Libre being on the back of my arm, which is the most effective place to wear it, uh, it gives me the chance to have a conversation that maybe I wouldn't otherwise. So I like it for that reason. Well, and, you know, I mentioned this to Martin, too, earlier that Carly Simon has a song called You Are So Vain. So you did, you you are kind of like in the same realm as Kay Moss's daughter who wore her insulin pump on the runway for Versace. Shout out to mm-hmm. her daughter for doing that. Um, and you just mentioned that, you know, uh, you had that incident with the photographer and said, no, I want to claim it and show it. And so I know there, 
this is you know we can't see the video for this discussion. So how big is the sensor, and what does it feel like? And let's just get nitty gritty about where is it on your arm because I think there's a lot of and I know there's so much great stuff on YouTube from Freestyle Library. Abbott has a million videos telling you how mm -hmm. to use it. If you want to check that out, you should. But Elise, tell us a little bit more specifically about it. So you mentioned your phone has your numbers. Tell us a little, how this whole thing works. Sure. So uh, it's a 14-day system, meaning that every 14 days you put on a new sensor. It's round. I want to say I'm going to get this wrong probably. It's about an inch to an inch and a half or so. Uh, and it goes on the back of your arm. You can do either your left or your right arm. Uh, you just need to make sure you clean the area before you stick it on. It has a little teeny tiny needle that goes into your arm and stays in your arm for the length of that sensor's life, which is 14 days. And um, as you don't feel it. This is the most important thing is I think when people find out I have a needle in my arm all the time, they're like, oh, my God, that must be so painful. And honestly, most of the time, I forget that it's there, except when I need to use it. Um, then I remember, oh, I have a free cell libre on. Um, so it's really, it's honestly, and I've heard this from a lot of people who wear it, it's an adjustment period because you'll be putting on, you know, a strap of a dress and it'll, you know, kind of hit your arm and you, oh, I have a free cell libre on. i got to remember to make sure I pull that strap over top of it. So it is really small for the most part in my painless to put on and also wear. You don't feel um, the needle, but the needle being in your arm is how it takes those uh, glucose readings. And so when you want to take a reading, you open the Freestyle Libre 2 app and you put your phone up to the sensor. It scans it and then it gives you a reading of where your, A1, or where your glucose levels are, I apologize. And then it's also tracking it throughout the day. So even when you're not actively taking a reading, there will be a graph that will show you the trends. So if you took it in the morning and then you take it again in the afternoon, it will show you kind of where you were in between those two readings, which is really helpful. And those graphs, as that data stays in the app, so you're able to look at the data and say, oh, wow, I can always tell that I actually go pretty low in between lunch and dinner. I should maybe make sure that I incorporate a snack or hey, I see myself going pretty high after dinner. Maybe I need to make sure, um, you know, to look at my portion sizes or, or maybe I make sure I'm always going on a walk after, after I eat or something like that. So really for me, the graphs were a good way for me to track patterns that taking my blood sugar with finger sticks, I didn't have, I couldn't make any of those connections because they were all individual experiences and individual numbers that let me know what was going on at that particular moment. This lets me know what's going on all the time, and that's empowering. And what is one of those aha moments specifically? Like, was it during a photo shoot that you that you thought you could just go for another three hours, and you suddenly realized your blood sugars were uh, trending lower? Was it when you decided I'm going to see what the difference between a white potato and a sweet potato uh, affect my blood sugars? Was you know what was it anxiety over? Am I going to be on the cover of Vanity Fair? It's between me and Taylor Swift. Like, what What was it? First of all, I wish it was that last one. It's actually a pretty everyday experience. <laughs> you know, I live a really extraordinary life modeling and traveling around the world and all this. But this is an ordinary experience where it really hit me how helpful this device is. I was burning the midnight oil. Literally, it was midnight, and I was working, and I was like, let me go grab a snack from the kitchen. And I wasn't really thinking. I had been just working all night, 
And I go in the kitchen, and as I'm about to grab the Oreos, my <laughs> my freestyle Libra comes off. The alarm goes off, and I was like, you're right. Let me make a different choice. <laughs> Put the Oreos down, grab something else, and I walk back to my office. And that's a very clear, great example of how it works. You, you need to, you know, I'm not thinking about eating. I'm just thinking, hey, I'm hungry. It's midnight. I want a snack. I'm going to get these Oreos because I can see them. They're in my sight. And then the alarm goes off, and it's just a perfect reminder that maybe I should grab a different snack. Maybe I should make sure I'm drinking some water. Maybe I need to get a really good night's rest tonight. You know, so I know you were talking about rest earlier, and it's so important with diabetes management. Everything, mind, body, and soul, it all goes together. Um, so those are the kind of things that the alarms really uh, ring true for me. Um, but that was a funny experience because I was literally Oreos in hand and it goes off and I was like, yep, I'm going to make a different choice. <laughs> no, I love that. That's a real life experience that I think we could all relate to. All right, we're going to take a mm-hmm. quick musical break. But when we come back, Alicia, we're going to talk more fashion. Uh, we're going to talk a little okay. bit about your battle with depression as well as what you mentioned earlier with your binge eating disorder. We want to just dive into that as well as just talk about how to be fierce with your plus size because that's important to all of our listeners. But first, it's time for more music. It. Our next song was our next song was written. We want to check this out, Elise. Uh, written back in 1931 and made famous by the 1942 film Casablanca, starring Ingrid Bergman. Enjoy Carly Simon's rendition as time goes by, courtesy of Sony Music. You must remember this. A kiss is still a kiss. Welcome back to Diabetes Late Night. I'm your host, Mr. Diva Benick. We're continuing our discussion with the plus size fashion and travel blogger, also an LGBTQ plus influencer, Elise Delisandro Santiago. I love that name. I might have to use it as a podcast. Um, when we when we when we stopped Elise, we were we were just about. I mean, when we ended in the first segment, we were. I'm uh, going to talk about some more of the issues you're dealing with. And I just think it's interesting that we're both part of the LGBTQ plus community. And one of my idols, Billie Jean King, talked openly about her binge eating disorder in her new autobiography, All In. Uh, she mentions that for her, she was um, before she was forced out of the closet in 1981, she was coming to terms with coming out to her parents. And being gay triggered a major internal conflict resulting in binge eating disorder. She said, one of my biggest goals was always to be honest with my parents, and I couldn't be for a long time. I tried to bring up the subject, but I was pretty uh, easy to stop it because I was reluctant anyway. When I, what I ended up with is an eating disorder that came from trying to numb myself from my feelings. I needed to surrender far sooner than I did. Can you relate to that, and can you tell us a little bit about your own experience with binge eating disorder? Absolutely. That really resonates with me, and I'm definitely going to pick up that book, and it sounds amazing. Um, But, yeah, I think a lot of uh, my experience with binge eating disorder is a lot about control. When things feel really out of my control, eating feels like a thing I can control, right? And it gets to be 
okay, I'll reward myself, I'll punish myself, all of these things because everything else in my life feels like chaos, but food is reliable in a way. Uh, and so it feels like a way to connect to something that you can control, which of course is an illusion, right? Uh, we can't actually <laughs> we can't actually control um, food and and how it interacts with our body in quite that way. So what has been a good countermeasure uh, is just really making informed decisions and not making decisions based on emotions and based on uh, non non truths, I guess. Uh, so for me, a big thing you know that has really helped is, okay, you have diabetes now, you cannot make decisions based on your, on your emotions. You have to look at the facts and understand that, you know, making, choosing to binge, even though it feels like you're making a choice and you're trying to control everything, it's actually not, it's not serving you. It's not helping you the way that you think that it is. Um, and so that has been kind of a, a really interesting experience to, I, and I confronted, I confronted that I had a binge after getting diagnosed with diabetes and realizing um, when I was having conversations with my doctor, oh, this is what's really going on. Um, and so she actually recommended that I see um, an eating disorder nutritionist, an eating disorder therapist, and then she was on my care team and all making sure that I was managing diabetes because so many people that you'll go to see um, when you first get diagnosed with diabetes, they'll be like, you need to do this, this, and this. And at the end of the day, that just didn't jive with also managing an eating disorder. And that's where I just go back to everything being so individualized that what works for somebody else may not work for you. And you just have to make sure that you're on your own path and doing what's right for you. Nobody else knows what's right for you. And definitely not everyone is your doctor. So don't listen to them. Listen to your doctors. Have care, a care team that uh, that understands your needs and what you're going through. And if they don't listen to you, then find somebody else. Uh, you should have people who are on your team, uh, and it should feel that way. So I think that's kind of been the biggest part of managing all of this. No, and thank you so much for talking so openly about it because, honestly, I did some research. It's much more common binge eating disorder than I think people think, and specifically Absolutely. for our community, people with type 2 diabetes plus size, because I found out that 35% of all adults enrolled in some kind of weight loss program, and let's face it, anyone with type 2 diabetes has been told to go to a weight loss program, meet the criteria mm -hmm. for binge eating disorder. So to, when I did the research, I found out that, um, and I just want to ask you if you could tell our audience a little bit about what what might be some of the common signs. But I, I heard that it was like if you engage in this behavior once a week for three months or, or longer, that it's kind of, that's what binge eating is, and it's usually about eating more rapidly than normal, eating past the point of full, eating alone, eating, you know, eating and purging. So just can you tell mm -hmm. us what some of the signs are for you? Yeah, it's definitely different for everyone, so I don't want to, you know, make – too many generalizations, but for me, some of the things that really hit was, you know, do you hide eating from people? And I thought about, you know, some of the food and the lengths I would go to to make sure I hid that I had had it and, um, you know, being secretive, uh, eating fat so fast that your doesn't have time to catch up uh, with your mind and tell you that you're full ignoring your hunger cues. The majority of people uh, with binge eating disorder, their hunger cues are way off. 
uh, because they're used to ignoring them, you know, and um, I bring this back to diabetes. And again, I mentioned, you know, the disassociation, disassociation thrives with eating disorders because you're tuned out. It allows you to make these decisions that are not in tune with your body. Right. So having tools like the freestyle Libre for me holds me accountable, tunes me in, doesn't allow me to make those choices. It makes me say, Hey, I emotionally feel like I need to eat, but physically I'm not actually hungry and my blood, my glucose levels are high. I should not be eating right now. I am emotionally hungry. What else can I do to self-soothe, which ties back into mental health and depression and anxiety. A lot of times I need to self-soothe in a different way that's not, I mean, all the time. I need to self-soothe in a way that's not food, right? So if you can make that choice to stop before doing the binge, there's so many tools that factor into that, and that's really what I've spent my time kind of learning about how to make those informed decisions, how to have those tools ready, because, of course, I'm not necessarily in wise mind when that's coming up, right? So in wise mind, setting up the tools so I know, hey, right now when I feel this way, I feel like I need need to eat, but really I need to do this instead. I need to maybe meditate. I need to um, go on a drive. Uh, I need to do something else to distract my mind that isn't eating because eating is not actually what my body needs right now. So I think that it can be really uh, individualized, but those are some of the things that I experienced when I went through my treatment. I think it's great. I love how your device, the Freestyle Libre, is helping you just be more present and break those cycles when they occur. Let's um, switch gears and talk a little bit about depression. Again, this is something that a lot of uh, people have, but people aren't willing to talk about it. And a lot of people, I think, also don't understand the diagnosis or what or what some of the symptoms could be. Again, we know you're not a doctor and, and you're talking from personal experience, but what led you to uh, be evaluated for depression? And tell us a little bit about that journey of living with depression as well as diabetes. In my early 20s, I decided that I wanted to go to a therapist, and I think I didn't really know what I was going for. I just knew that I wanted to understand how to talk about my emotions, and I remember asking her, you know, my insurance company says that they need a diagnosis, and and she told me it was like some, like more than just generalized anxiety or more than just generalized depression, and I was like, really? I have to, like... I don't remember what the term was. In my head, it felt like it was extreme depression. You have extreme depression. And I remember hearing that word for the first time, and I was like, really? And she was like, does that change anything? Does knowing that change anything? Because it really doesn't change it. We've been doing the work. Why does knowing what it's called matter? And I was like, it really doesn't, right? Like, it doesn't actually change my experience or what I'm living with. It just changes, you know, maybe what my insurance needs to treat this, which is fine. Um, and so I was like, I want to be the best version of me. And so if the best version of me is in treatment for depression, then that's what I'm going to do. And I've been in therapy ever since. Um, and I can just see a, I can see a strong link between, you know, my mental health being managed when I'm in therapy and uh, when I'm a few times where I've maybe had a month break by, by accident, by happenstance. I can tell there's a difference. And so for me, I'm okay with the fact that therapy is part of my life. You know, it's something I need, and that's okay. It's fantastic. Again, like, 
you're so outspoken. It's amazing to talk to you. I want to uh, <laughs> dovetail into ready to stare, but I want to see if we can make this bridge. Okay, so you talked earlier at the very beginning about another topic that's close to my heart, which is like weight-neutral doctors and healthcare providers mm-hmm. and treatment. And so I, you know, so many of our listeners, so many people who we outreach to on Zoom and various diabetic events have been shamed and blamed by their doctor for type 2 diabetes. Mm-hmm. And literally that 10-minute ten uh, talk with their doctor starts and ends with you should lose weight. So I just want to, mm-hmm. you know, I want you to talk to our audience because there's so many people who are in these vicious cycles with their health care providers they don't even like to go anymore. Um, how, how, what, what inspiration or motivation or encouragement and words can you offer to someone who's kind of not knowing where to go? They just feel very defeated because of, of the idea I said. And lead us to this weight neutral because I feel it does tie into your ready to stare concept. It absolutely ties into what I do with Ready to Stare, which is when you are confident in who you are, people are going to stare, right? And when they're staring, that gives you the opportunity to have a conversation and change the narrative, change their minds, and help people see you as a full human being, right? I think so often when we're different, we're othered, we're seen as people's worst fears, uh, as plus-sized people, as larger body people, people living with type 2 diabetes, we're seen as ooh, I don't want to get like that. I don't want to be that person. And to say that doctors aren't also sometimes fatphobic is not true. Certainly they are. Uh, And so I think it's really important that we understand, and it's not easy to do. It has taken me a long time to learn to be my own advocate. But doctors are there to help and care for you. And if you do not feel like they are listening to you, then you can leave and find someone else because they, their job is to care for you as an individual. If they are looking at you like a number on a chart or a number on the scale, then that's not looking at you like a whole human and a whole patient, and we all deserve to be cared that way. I know I have gone to the dermatologist before, and she's like, oh, well, don't you want to lose weight? And I was like, what does that have to do with my pimples on my face? You know, like that doesn't have anything to do with this. You know, people have broken a toe, and they're like, why did you – you must, you've got to lose weight or you're going to break it. I mean, we've all heard ridiculous things at the doctors. And I think that that's a larger systemic issue uh, with, that, we can, that we can't really tackle, right? We can certainly tackle that, the fact that that exists. But what we can do as individuals is, is challenge that narrative and really say, hey, I, I'm here for diabetes management, and I understand that you've been trained to look at my weight as an indicator of my health, but I look at my A1C as an indicator of my health, so can we focus on that? And you would be surprised. I think if they're a good, you know, health practitioner, then they will be like, yes, you're correct, because you are correct. That is the indicator of your health, not your weight. Uh, so I think it's all about having the language. You can deny being uh, weighed at the doctor. I, a lot of people don't know that, but you actually don't have to be. There's legally nothing they can do to enforce that. So if you say, I would like to decline, they cannot force you to. Uh, so that is really, it's, and especially for people with eating disorders, you are able to say, I am in eating disorder treatment and I don't want to be weighed. Uh, and they cannot push you on that. So I think it's just really important to understand how to be an advocate for yourself 
that you have a lot more power in the situation than you think that you do. I think going into these situations, we assume the doctor knows everything about us, but doctors need to be reminded that you're a human sometimes. So I think that that uh, could be a really powerful tool in your back pocket to just let them know, hey, let's, let's focus on what's really going on. I understand that maybe my weight might be uncomfortable for you, but I'm actually experiencing a lot of inflammation. I'm actually experiencing this. Can we talk about what's causing that? Let's focus on what's actually going on. That's what you need to say because that's really what their job is. So I think that. Well, I empowering. think it's important for people to hear your story because we they need to hear that still they're not alone in those thoughts, you know, because a lot of times mm-hmm. that's just something that it, you you personalize and internalize, like you were saying. And and it's great to meet a role model like you. And I I hope people take your words through their hearts. I'm just curious, going forward with the advocacy, because you are living with type 2 diabetes, was it a challenge to get the freestyle library when you uh, saw it on the commercial and wanted it? Was your insurance willing to uh, help you out with it? Was your doctor willing to advocate for it? Because most of the time you hear it's about uh, people with type 1 being able to get the device, not so many people with type 2. Yes. So I went to my doctor and she immediately was like, yes, I, knowing that I had a history of an eating disorder at that point, by the time I saw the commercial, um, she was like, yes, I agree. This is a great tool for you. We're going to get it for you. She put it through. And at the time, my insurance did not cover it. This was a few years ago. And I, every time I went to the doctor, every three months, I was like, let's try again, let's try again. Um, when I got married, I, my new insurance did end up covering it. But one thing that I've since learned is that um, Abbott uh, and the Free Cell Libre team, they work with Medicaid, um, and they make sure that people who are on Medicaid are able to access uh, and get the Free Cell Libre because, as we know, diabetes can impact people who are lower income and who may be on Medicaid. And for me, I actually was on Medicaid when I first left my corporate job to follow my dreams. That meant my income earning went way, way down because here I was now an entrepreneur leaving my comfy desk job and my insurance. Um, And so I was on Medicaid with diabetes. And it was at the time really complicated and difficult to navigate. So knowing that there is an advocate out there like Abbott and like Free, and, and Freestyle Libre that exists for folks on Medicaid is really important to me as someone who's, who's been in that position. Uh, so that means a lot to me for sure. Fantastic. All right, we're going to end this interview with something fun. Nancy Sinatra is <laughs> going to help us out. Okay. Got our boots on. You're going to have a chance here to okay, kick one of these two it. things to the curb. We were studying you on YouTube today, and we realized that oh my gosh, Elise has actually posted a swimwear review on YouTube. She's uh, not only is she posting pictures of, I mean, not only is she talking about swimsuits, she's also posting herself wearing different budget-friendly swimwear swimwear options that are available on mm-hmm. Amazon. So your question tonight: Which one are you going to kick to the curb? Bikini or tankini, since you're wearing both in those videos? Definitely kicking tankini to the curb. I think ever since embracing um, my body, learning to love my body, I just love to be in a bikini because it feels like such a radical statement to be like, you think that this body is not beautiful. I find it beautiful, and I'm going to wear what I want. So to me, a bikini is a powerful statement, and I just think they're cuter. (laughs) 
I love that. I got that that vibe exactly. Um, I want to <laughs> shut the front door to that because that was so good. <laughs> yeah. Shut the front door. All right. So, uh, but you know, you had a really interesting tip that we saw that you were saying that when you shop online for swimwear, you like to size up rather than size down and buy a bigger size. I wonder, is that a tip for a lot of plus size uh, women out there that maybe they should consider? Like, what led you to that conclusion? For me, I want to wear clothes that fit, right? So it's not about, there are some brands where I may wear a 16, and there's some brands where I may wear a 26. Sizing is not consistent. It can be wildly inconsistent between brands. So wear what fits. That's what I say. The number on the tag does not matter as much as how it fits on your body and how it makes you feel. So in certain brands like Amazon, I know that they tend to run more like junior sizing sometimes. So in that case, I try to size up just to make sure that what I order is going to fit. At the end of the day, I want to wear something that looks good and makes me feel good, and who cares what size is on the tag. And quickly, just tell everyone you're, you had a couple of favorite brands out there for plus-size swim, swimwear. What, what are they? Um, I love uh, Lane Bryant's brand, Cacique. They make uh, lingerie and swimwear. They make some really supportive ones. I love Torrid. They make amazing bra styles. I really love Chromat. If, you're, if you have more of a budget, they're LGBTQ-owned, and they do amazing inclusive runway shows during New York Fashion Week, and they do make plus sizes, which is great. Uh, if you're on a budget, Amazon's the way to go for sure. Um, and navigating Amazon plus size can be difficult. So definitely check out my reviews on YouTube because I've tried so many different suits from there because the sizing can be so inconsistent. So I, I like to think I like got your back when it comes to Amazon. So You're fabulous. I'm so glad you could join us tonight and be Thank part you. of the show. <laughs> we really enjoyed having you be a guest. And, and just so much sharing for so much of yourself. It was it was wonderful. So I want to thank Martin. I want to thank Elise for joining us tonight. And I want to thank you for tuning in, audience. Amazing 11 years, and we're still going strong. Hey, don't miss uh, Eva Bedick's Diabetes Late Night Podcast in November. Someone said we might be playing Puccini. All right, visit Eva Bedick's Facebook page, my YouTube channel, and find out more about our events on Eventbrite. They're free, and they're on Zoom. Remember, every diva, like Elise, has an entourage, but I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and stay healthy together. We're going to close the show with the song that won Carly Simon the Best Original Song Oscar in 1989. It's Let the River Run from the Mike Nichols film Working Girl, which I think could be a great fashion inspiration for Elise. Maybe she wants to do a throwback to the 80s with that. All right, here we go. Enjoy your evening. Thanks for joining us, everybody. Let's-